<clears throat> All right. Let's there you go. Welcome to another episode of Discovering Darwin, a podcast dedicated to the writings and musings of Charles Darwin. I'm your host, uh, Dr. James Wagner. That's who I am, right? And <laughs> I'm joined by my esteemed colleagues. Today I have Dr. Sarah Bray. Hello, Sarah. Hey, hey, James. <laughs> and Josh Atkins. Dr. Atkins is not with us today. In absentia. In absentia. Yeah, he unfortunately did not get to join us for the last uh, episode to get Darwin home, but we have a special, special guest, our colleague, our esteemed colleague, Dr. Belinda Sly. Hello. Hello. This is my first time. <laughs> so you know. Virgin. Yes. Yes. Um, so doc, uh, Dr. Sly, Belinda, tell us a little bit about yourself. So you're a professor of biology. Yes, here at Transylvania, and uh, I am a developmental biologist with focus on genetics and uh, would still consider myself to be in the field of evo-devo. Mm -hmm. I was wondering, when you were in grad school, did you like walk around? I, I, <laughs> I had this thought the other day. Did Belinda, when she was in grad school, like walk around and go, Dr. Sly, Dr. Sly. No, like practice never, saying your never name. And thinking, thinking, do I say it like a James Bond villain, Dr. Sly. Now I wanna know if you went around. <laughs> No, I, yeah, did you, when you were in grad school, like, get practice saying your name? I don't think name, I ever Dr. did. No. Now, at one point, I did tell Joey that I wish he'd call me Dr. Sly more. <laughs> <laughs> in bed. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, no, I don't remember doing that. I thought you were going to say something like, did you wander around looking at all the fossils oh, yeah. in southern Indiana? Did you Indiana? do that, too? Yes, <laughs> absolutely. That was a big, big yeah, you deal. You have a huge ammonite. Uh, fossil in your I do in your office I do yeah. no I just thought what a great last name for a professor come on I know it and, is pretty great and then with your initial <laughs> it's even better yes for sure yeah be sly yeah. yes anyway I don't know BJS if you want the full one <laughs> you can make you can make words from that too <laughs> the distance off the pathway for you is very short isn't it <laughs> it's a very short path and I'm going to have to take my sweater <laughs> off because I'm... James, uh, glasses are getting steamed up yes. right now. <laughs> sure, He's really nervous. <laughs> there is editing, right? Yeah. Uh, sure. Okay. Sure, there's editing. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. So anyway, uh, when we last left Charles, he was leaving Australia with one of my favorite quotes of Charles Darwin. He says, I leave your shores without sorrow or regret. <laughs> And when he left Australia. And now he's on his way, he thinks, on his way home to England. And this is what we're going to talk about today is chapter 20 and chapter 21. Um, and, and they're really quite different chapters. Now, Belinda agreed to join us at such short notice that um, she's really only had time to focus on chapter 21. So we're not keeping her out of the conversation, but we're not asking much of her on <laughs> chapter 20. But feel free to chime in as you wish. Okay. okay. <laughs> But um, chapter 20, I thought, uh, did have a different tone than chapter 21 in that Darwin spent a whole bunch of time describing these very small islands out in the middle of the ocean that he encountered and their structure and mostly their distribution of plants and animals. 
And Sarah, for a per plant person, mm -hmm. did you just love those detailed descriptions yeah. of the plants and how they got to the I different did. islands? I, like, it was, it was exciting. I thought it was interesting because of the fact that he talked about that, you know, there aren't a lot of species on any of these islands, but those species that were there... Um, so, for example, he talked about the Direction Island in the Cocos Islands and said there's only 20 species, but they were from 19 different genera and 16 different families. And so that's like, an, you know, just kind of interesting that um, and, and just where they came from. So he kind of connected, oh, these are um, littoral species from eastern India, but because of wind currents um, and sorry, wind and and ocean currents, they would have had to travel like 2,400 miles to get there. And so just like the extremes of how these islands are colonized and how it's kind of a lottery. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I thought of when I was reading it at first, I was bored to tears, yeah. but because <laughs> it is quite tedious. <laughs> That's um, how I felt about the corals, so it's okay. Yeah, <laughs> but, yeah both of them. He, yeah. he, he spends a lot of time yeah. on both of these uh, distribution patterns and or uh, structures that uh, he's trying to make sense of and using naturalistic explanations. And that's what I kind of ended up wondering is, was Darwin, now remember, he's still only like 25, right? He's mm -hmm. still quite young, and he hasn't decided that he even knows what evolution is. But he seems to be really spending a lot of time basically saying, look, I can explain where all these plants came from. In other words, they weren't specially created by God and put in this specific right. island. Yeah, exactly. And that they're the, the the species that we find on these islands are basically through, like you said, crazy random happenstance right. or, or just because of distribution patterns. Yeah. And I thought, you know, I, I don't know if he's working something out as he's writing this or if it's, you know. Yeah, I don't know. It, to me, it was a very different chapter compared. And maybe it's because he, there weren't, he spends in most of the chapters a lot of time talking about the peoples he mm -hmm. interacts with. And there's really only one place where he talks about it. And it's actually some good, it's some, it's a great quote. Um, and I don't know if this is the right time to do it, but yeah, I'm sure do it here and you can cut it later. <laughs> she um, thinks I edit more than I do. I know. Um, so you're just stuck with what I want to talk about. That's fine. Um, I don't know what island they're on at this point, but he, he talks about the Malay women um, and a, supersti a superstitious scene where they're dancing and he says, the dance did not commence till the moon had risen, and it was well worth remaining to behold their bright globe so quietly shining through the long arms of the coconuts as they waved in the evening breeze. These scenes of the tropics are themselves so delicious that they almost equal those dearer ones to which we are bound by each best feeling of the mind. So it was, you know, in a chapter that was very technical, mm -hmm. there were these moments of interesting prose and I think also a bunch of horny dudes that are like, oh, look at those ladies shake it. Yeah. <laughs> but they were, uh, they were shaking it because of, uh, they were sad though, right? It was, they had like decorated the spoon to the represent. Spoon, yeah, I don't really remember what. It was, yeah, it was a, it was a, a, gr it was a grief dance in the middle yeah. of the night to the full moon. Right. And they're all like leering at them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, you're right. Uh, the, the, the language does bounce between very technical, dry accounting um, to, like you said, some very poetic uh, prose. One of the ones that I was struck by in this around April the, the 6th, he is talking about the sort of structure of these atoll islands. And I guess we should probably first get the listener to understand what these, these structures are. Um, it's also very interesting, at least in my edition, the Harvard 
version of the voyage, which I think is a, an accurate uh, reprinting of the original, there's the most drawings are in this chapter. Right, yeah. There's a bunch of mm -hmm. different illustrations to, uh, of, of showing island for, uh, structure, mm -hmm. his proposed formation of the islands, and then like a, a rock, a lava rock that right, he thought yeah. was mm -hmm. very interesting. Sarah, do you want to describe to us what an atoll island is? or? Yeah, right. So, I mean, if you have a classical view of, of a Pacific island, you know, that kind of like castaway island, that's probably what you're thinking of. Uh, so it's kind of a, a usually a ring, often with an opening, not a lot of elevation, usually sandy beach, um, but you can kind of, yeah, it's a the ring and there's coral surrounding it and in that inside ring the water is quite calm right exactly. and beautiful blue green yeah. whereas and then that that contrast he describes that the, the bright contrast between the blue green water the white sand and yeah. the rich blue sky right and the green coconut trees that so you got all yeah. these really uh, vivid Vibrant, primary yeah. colors yeah but then outside that reef the ocean's just right. crashing drops away it. yeah real yeah. fast yeah actually he was saying that uh, Fitzroy was trying to sound off of one of these islands, and they dropped a uh, rope. They dropped 7,200 feet of rope. <laughs> and my m mind was just numb by that concept, first, of them having that much That's rope. rope. <laughs> yeah. That much rope on the boat. <laughs> and them just lowering and lowering and lowering for how like, long? And then going, like, oh, well, we nev and we're we never hit it. it. Yep, we're not going <laughs> to hit it. So that's really crazy to think you're sitting on an island in the middle of the ocean, that just not even a mile offshore, yeah. it is like Boom. a canyon, a Grand Canyon down below. Right. Yeah, it's, it's pretty stark. So he, he, these island formations were well known to, to all mm -hmm. the sailors because those inner harbors are safe. Right. You can hunt in them, catch sea turtles and yep. fish. Uh, but nobody giant really- clams. Yeah, giant clams, you know. Uh, but not too many people know at that time how they were formed, right? And this is right. where Charles, one of his first, I, I think probably his first paper, it's a geology paper, was it this? this idea that he published mm -hmm. but I think that's what it was he did publish a paper yeah. on this trying to explain and, and this idea of what that corals grow up and the island sinks down and I think yeah even a step before that we should introduce is the idea that these are volcanoes right, right? Mm -hmm. and these volcanoes then their slopes are being colonized by corals but in the same time the volcanic island is sinking right and so that's why you have that huge drop off right because mm -hmm. think of a slope of a volcano um and then you hit the ocean floor so you just have this little pimple sticking right up from the, <laughs> the ocean, ocean floor um and i think one thing when i was looking back over this you know james asked me to do this part and i was like oh it was boring um <laughs> but james knew in fact it was not so. <laughs> um, or maybe Maybe, yeah, whatever. <laughs> I, I had a little bit better appreciation. No, it's good science he did, but it's geology. Um, <laughs> oh, that um, Lyle had kind of laid this out. So, like, Darwin was somewhat inspired. We've talked before that he had um, principles on the boat with him. and Principles of geology sorry, by Lyle. Yes, yeah. correct. But. Um, and so this was an idea that he had already laid out. And we talked earlier when he was in South America, he started having some of his ideas Darwin mm -hmm. in the book about corals, but this is where he really lays out the argument and then tests it. And so that's what I appreciated when I went back and made myself read it again, <laughs> um, was this idea that he had this 
actually if you figure out a way to have a testable hypothesis and maybe the part of the reason why i don't get as excited about it is geology is harder for me to think about it as an experimental science and it is but it's just like you're not creating designing say an experiment but you're look, you're using other data to kind of test hypotheses right. and so darwin and fitzroy are out there and they take a piece of tallow and they start dropping it down and darwin says well you know the coral can't live below about 120 feet because they need enough sunlight to be able to have the endosymbiont photosynthesize um, and so he's like, okay, we can test this idea then of subsidence of the, of the volcanoes, you know, gradually falling downward um, by looking to see where the corals are and if they're alive or not. And so he found corals using this tallow deeper than 120 feet, but they were dead. And so the only reason they could be there then is if they had sunk down. If they, yeah, they were alive at some point, but right. higher up, yeah. right. Yeah, and he also makes these really interesting observations about the distribution of these unique island um, forms that you don't find them in the Atlantic, right? Mm -hmm. You only find them in the Pacific. Right. And the ring, the ring of fire. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice, yes. Very nice. Right, and he didn't know that, though, right? The right. whole idea of plate tectonics yeah. was a Wegener in 1912, I think, 1915, didn't get. I remember that. Didn't, didn't, I mean, it took till sixties yes. until people really right. Right, because they couldn't understand how these um, plates would move, and it was and only. We the, should say the nineteen sixties, I guess, yes. since we are in the nineteenth right. century right now with Darwin. That's true. So <laughs> Darwin had no notion of plate tectonics, which you know, you look at the map and you go, like, yeah, why did you get that? Yeah, Africa mm -hmm. and South America obviously were fit. Yeah, they were uh, really close to each other at some point, <laughs> but. Uh, yeah, he he didn't have that model or that mechanism by which he could create the volcanoes in the middle of the ocean, right? Except yeah. he knew that they were there. They were there. They were there at one point. Right. And, I, and I think what's really crazy to think about is it's one of those those things where it has to be that perfect rate of sinking mm -hmm. with the matching the rate of growth of the corals. Right. And there must be a lot of failed islands out there, right? They sank too fast. The yeah. corals never got it, and or they never really sink at all. So you don't get you get like uh, Ambergris Key, where we go mm -hmm. in Belize, where you've got that barrier reef out there, right? But it's it's, it's never going to get as dramatic as uh, he saw with some of these islands in Tahiti. Or, um. Well, and I uh, just I, when James when we taught in Hawaii way back when mm -hmm. I remember you teaching about this before we took the kids over there and I think that was such a great visual for them to be able to look at the islands yeah, and the and order of their birth to, yes right and I, I just didn't know if that would be helpful helpful for people to think about those islands oh in terms of their the aging age, themselves and then yeah. The, yeah as they turn into atolls mm -hmm. and that's yeah. what I think is because they didn't go to Hawaii at all mm -mm. Um, yep. and like because yeah that's a great because you have a hot spot right you have this chronological order right there whereas mm -hmm. darwin's not seeing it in that yeah it's true oh is, is, so that is unusual to see that, that clear to, yeah, yeah that the, clear yeah. pattern and so i know i, I, think I hadn't that's, thought of that yeah. yeah so he he on this chapter uh does spend a lot of time describing his mechanism by which coral reefs and uh, these atolls are being formed and he's got nice little drawings many many drawings that are interesting um and then, as you were saying, Sarah, the, the, the language is, is oscillates, I guess, between yeah. somewhat poetic and then somewhat dry Technical, accounting. Yeah. I was um, 
struck by a little bit of reading uh, in August the 6th uh, on chapter 20. Darwin, I started reading this and I'll read it to you and see if it, it resonates with you guys. He, he's writing about going and looking at this um, coral reef surf, uh, coral reef area, and he says, but there is, to my mind, much grandeur in the view of the outer shores of these lagoon islands. There is a simplicity to the barrier-like beach, the margin of green bushes and tall coconuts, the solid flat of dead coral rock strewn here and there with great loose fragments, and the line of furious breakers all around away towards either hand. The ocean throwing its waters over the broad reef appears an invincible, all-powerful enemy, yet we see it resisted and even conquered by means which at first seem most weak and inefficient. It is not that the ocean spares the rock of coral, the great fragments scattered over the reef and heaped on the beach whence the tall coconut spring plainly bespeak the unrelenting power of the waves, nor are any periods of repose granted. The long swell caused by the gentle but steady action of the trade wind always blowing in one direction over a wide area causes breakers, almost equally in force during those a gale of wind in the temperate regions of which never cease to rage. And then he goes on about this, this, the rock and everything, but he says, yet these low insignificant coral islets stand and are victorious for here another power as an antagonist takes part in the contest. The organic forces separate the atoms of carbonate of lime one by one from the foaming breakers and unite them into a symmetrical structure. Let the hurricane tear up its thousand huge fragments, yet what will that tell against the accumulated labor of myriads of architects at work night and day, month after month? It's, I don't know, it's so dramatic, but also this like, these little animals are daily building this wall that constantly gets busted down and then at the scale. Kind of reminds me of that last paragraph of Origin. I don't know if it works for you. Yeah, it totally does. Yeah, I, I, I guess I just didn't, I was blowing past the coral, I guess, when I read it. <laughs> but as you read it, now you're right. It totally, it has the cadence of that last paragraph of Origin. It's very poetic. I mean, it's interesting like that he does vacillate so much. Mm -hmm. Um, in this chapter between like really kind of what is the word I'm looking for it's just so P pedantic or dry well, or no, sort of I, yeah I mean that is but I'm trying to think of this like I guess expansive way in which he phrased this right mm -hmm. that is still talking about a process in a scientific way but it's much more poetic yeah yeah I thought so yeah yeah it yeah it really has the cadence of there is a grandeur in this view of life with its several powers having been breathed into one or into a few forms or into one. And that whilst this planet has gone on cycling according to the fixed law of gravity from so simple a beginning, endless forms most beautiful and most wonderful have been and are being evolved. Sarah has that tattooed on her arm. That's how <laughs> she's able to actually just recite it like that. <laughs> I, I'm glad you said my arm. <laughs> Alrighty. <laughs> is there anything else we want to actually talk about chapter 20? I'm, I'm not sure if there's, I mean, it is, if anybody wants to know how coral islands are formed, I highly yes. recommend you read chapter 20. I, well, I will ask you this, James, because I didn't take the time to look it up. <laughs> I mean, for the most part, it seems consistent with what I understand of how 
things are formed, mm-hmm. how corals are formed. Oh, you mean is he, yeah, is he is correct? He good? Yeah, 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 he's yeah. totally, yeah. He totally worked it out. All right, are we going to end with chapter 20 here? Sure. Yeah. We'll take a break, and when we come back, we will do the final chapter of Voyage of the Beagle. You're listening to Discovering Darwin. Discovering Darwin. Today we are bringing Darwin home. Uh, we've been in the Pacific Atolls and we are now on our way to Mauritius, which is still in the Indian Ocean. We're going to swing around Cape of Good Hope. I'm questioning myself. Cape of Good Hope. Um, and eventually on to South America. Well, yes. Well, they Darwin thought, thinks he's going home. They all think they're going home. <laughs> But Fitzroy has other ideas. Yeah. <laughs> so he basically in chapter 21, it's uh, a, a series of chains of islands that they're, they're stopping at. Um, I thought it was interesting that these islands, um, he, he becomes a little self-conscious in his own writing. He, he writes uh, in describing one of them. He says, the scenery may be described as intermediate in character between that of the Galapagos and of Tahiti but this will convey a definite idea to very few persons. <laughs> <laughs> I noticed that too. Yeah, it's yes. like, is, he, is, it, is that humble bragging? You know, to me, it reminds me of uh, when I was in the Galapagos or Tahiti. <laughs> but anyway, he, uh, so he, he, these, all these little islands are um, English right. Uh, co- colonies, right? Is Mauritius? I'm not sure about Mauritius. I think Mauritius, Mauritius might be French. Well, he talks quite a bit about it starts off people saying, speaking French there, but yeah, uh, right, yeah when he's there, it's under English. Over to Eng- yes. yeah, England. From I think the that's French. right. Yeah. Yeah. For many years, under the English government. Um, on Mauritius, I feel like there were different times where he kind of talked about this turnover from the French to the British, and of course, he's always he is always pro-British no matter yes. where he goes. He's like, mm-hmm. oh, the ingenuity of the English in you know conquering right. the land or whatever. Um, but here you'd had a, a place colonized by the French, but I thought I remember him talking about, um, you know, as the English take over, there's going to be more and more poor people. Am I remembering yes, that Yes, okay. yes, yes. I remember that. But I just thought that was interesting because I think, Blinda, you had brought up his attention to detail in terms of, like, the number of species encountered and... And so do you, you think that is because quite a bit of work had already been done there? Is this an island that was settled earlier? Yeah, or, I, you know. I think um, like Helena had been a pretty long term. He talks about it, too. There are mm-hmm. hundreds of years the English are on St. Helena mm-hmm. um, using, you know, obviously using it as a way station between these two continents, I think is one of the reasons and bringing, bringing little pieces of home with them in terms of um, flora and fauna. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he talks about 
the presence of rats and cats and mm -hmm. goats mm -hmm. and lots of other different animals that um, wreak havoc ecologically on the mm -hmm. islands. So that's another one of those where he's starting to, I guess, by hitting all these different islands, like you said, Sarah, that have been colonized at different amounts of time, he can sort of see the impact humans have on these these systems. There was, in the previous chapter, there's a moment where he lands, if you remember, this one little atoll that some guy just colonized with his wife and oh, kids yeah. and some slaves. Yeah, it was oh, wow. Weird. And it was a very weird story because the slaves, so he took his wife and kids and plopped down on this island that's really beautiful. It's got the, it's like the classic atoll, mm -hmm. atoll where it's just a ring mm -hmm. at this point. Mm -hmm. And the, another guy set up shop on the other mm -hmm. side of the ring and the first guy, Everybody all his slaves him. left left him and, <laughs> and went to go live with the other guy. Wow. And, and, and Darwin says they were kind of free, but they weren't. Mm -hmm. So they were still kind of slaves for this other guy, but I guess he treated them better. And I just, I have this imagery of these two families living across, they could see each other yeah. basically across the, the Ring Islands. But, uh, but, you know, there's where he sees the beginning of human changing the, the habitat. Uh, ruining the groundwater and and right. and having negative impacts on the on the island before, uh, as they colonize it. But that was a really little microcosm of the the phenomenon that he's seeing with these bigger islands. I see. I, I did find perhaps what we were thinking about. This is going back from more the land, but to the people, uh, where he says that uh, after the island was given up by the East India Company and the rich people were emigrating, the poverty mm -hmm. was going to increase. And, and I did think it was interesting that he was speculating on what was going to happen to the island because, um, as he says, the low wages. Basically, the part that got me was now that people are blessed with freedom, a right which I believe they fully value, it seems probable that their numbers will, numbers will quickly increase. If so, what is to become of the little state? of St. Helena. What's yeah, so, so it just it struck me that he was thinking about these ideas of even just basic economics. Yeah. Later in his diary, he writes about um, the people of the Azores and how they have to leave the island because even though there's food there, there's housing, it's a beautiful island to live on, they couldn't make enough money to work. Working, there's no real money to be made. Okay. And so they're mm -hmm. all going back into... Uh, Portugal or to the continent to, and he's like how horrible it is it you know that they're in this economy that they have to abandon this wonderful island paradise to go right. work and make money so it's like yeah that's interesting how the these uh, economies can corrupt right a paradise and, and it is horrible when you have to work and make yes. money I know oh, no. he doesn't know a lot about that yeah. right <laughs> yes, exactly he does not, not. The other thing, I guess, you know, in terms of of St. Helena, but it will come up again as we go back to Brazil, um, that struck out to me is, he, you know, of course, when Darwin goes to all these places, he often hires local people to guide him or mm -hmm. carry his stuff or find him food or whatever. And um, when he was on St. Helena, he had a guide who he was spoke highly of that was you know conscientious a hard worker it was an older man too wasn't right he? yeah and he said it was strange to my ears to hear a man nearly white and respectably dressed talking with indifference of the time when he was a slave <laughs> i yeah. thought that was a pretty um 
in, it's, there's just so much in there that's pretty interesting which is that okay so this is someone who is emancipated who could pass as white um who again well darwin often has these kind of tensions between the savage and the civilized and so clearly he kind of expects this man because he was a slave even if he looks nearly white to have this bit of savage in him because he talks about oh he you know he has to mention that he was respectably mm-hmm. dressed but then also again you, it would be interesting to have another context that oh speaking with indifference of the times when he was a slave yeah and uh, we'll come back to this whole idea of darwin mm. when he reflects over all of the kinds of people he met and the his view of, of slaves and slavery mm. it's kind of again thinking that he wrote this when he was about 26 years old um, yeah i think it's maybe a good time to remind ourselves that this is a piece of text that was not created and you brought this up before james because you brought in pieces of his actual diary but mm-hmm. this was something that was written and created after he returned home this is not in the same right. time and place and so he's able to but a lot of it actually uh, you you're absolutely right or he edits it for mm-hmm. this popular consumption mm-hmm. so he cuts out a lot of things that uh that, uh, or he pitches it in a different way. I was going to say, I, th- I think we've talked before about how he kind of, um, yeah, edits himself in sometimes to be not as condemning mm-hmm. of Europeans as he is in his private journal. Exactly, yeah. right. He's more critical in his, right. his private because, journal. Yeah, you got to sell some books. <laughs> <laughs> so he bops around these islands. I think now, Sarah, you said we're in the, are we so now we in the hit, Atlantic? Right, exactly. That's where Helena is. Um, And I guess, yeah, the two things that stuck out to me about Helena were um, St. Helena. He's That's, of course, those of you listeners may be familiar with, that was the last place that Napoleon was exiled, was actually to St. Helena, and his his tomb is there, and and Darwin's house is not far from from that grave, and and he talks about that. and he doesn't see, he's like, I don't need to say anything about it because it's been so well spoken of <laughs> in other writings. Um, so, yeah, there's this kind of race relations issue with the, the guy that he has to take him around. But he, he does talk a lot about the, um, the flora and the fauna and the fact that, um, you know, he says, when we consider the number of plants now found on the island is 746, that out of these 52 alone are indigenous species, the rest having been imported mostly from England. The many imported species must have destroyed some of the native kinds and is only on the highest and steepest ridges that the indigenous flora is now predominant. So the impact that you know humans have as they move things Europeans, around. Europeans, yeah. yeah. Especially the British because they like to recreate. And Darwin gets warm, fuzzy feelings a lot of times when he goes to these places. Right, yeah. and, and that was kind of confusing to me. It's you know, romantic to think of him as one of the first environmentalists yeah. who wants to <laughs> conserve natural areas. But I didn't, I just saw that he was observing the changes but not mm-hmm. necessarily judging mm-hmm. the changes. I don't know if you've yeah. seen that through the rest of the book and I and I think it's because I think he's homesick so there's both things like there's something comforting about seeing Mm -hmm. uh, there's different times where he talks about something looking like the English countryside and he says it in a way that sounds very longing and appreciative right Right. Um, 
but other you know i think in this that little quote i read yeah it's maybe neutral right right exactly and he definitely sorry talks about the improvement of land is really going along with the destruction Mm -hmm. of the natural habitat so and that language is still used to this day Mm -hmm. when they improve land by making it useful to us yes exactly (laughs) like mountaintop removal right (laughs) so he they leave can we leave saint uh, saint helena Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then we're going to head to the ascension islands now where are we so now we're about halfway between um africa and south america so if if you were thinking i'm going home to england (laughs) we're we're taking a really wide turn if that's what we're doing yeah it seems odd right and where where is it that he he doesn't even does he say it by the time they hit that like oh because we're gonna go to no No. we're still like i was looking at his diary right so they go to ascension and they get there july july the 19th and then uh on july 23rd uh this is what he has in his diary which I love. July 23rd. In the afternoon, we put to sea. When in the offing, the ship's head was directed in west-southwest course. A sour, a sore discomfiture and surprise to those on board who were most anxious to reach England. I did not think again to see the coast of South America, but I'm glad our fate has directed us to Bahia in Brazil. And then August 1st is when they arrive. So, yeah... I guess so. Fitzroy wanted to check his charts. That was the well, whole and idea. that's what I see here. All he says is, "On leaving Ascension, we sailed for Bahia on the coast of Brazil in order to complete the chronometrical measurement of the world." So I was just when I read this, I was like, "Okay, yeah, he knew that this was that. the plan," right. but I didn't realize that Fitzroy kept it quiet. Yes, to everybody. <laughs> and why do you like? I guess I mean my understanding of the British Navy is basically the captain is is essentially God mm-hmm. on that ship. And right. so he doesn't need to do that. But like was there some reason that he did not tell them that we're not going home now? <laughs> Cuz everybody's under this impression, right? Right. It just I don't know, it's interesting what is the motivation of Fitzroy to be like ah, guess what bitches? Okay, so if, uh, I think I I don't know Fitzroy, obviously. We weren't <laughs> friends. <laughs> But there's a you know you're asking about you know why didn't he tell them and, and you get a sense that Fitzroy we've talked about his separation from yeah. the crew and all that stuff but here's a funny story when they get back to England they get back in October of this year right so we're, we're almost almost home but he gets home they get back in October and as soon as they get back Fitzroy announces that he's going to get married in December to which Darwin said. I didn't know he was engaged. Yeah. And in the four years and nine months they were together, Fitzroy never mentioned that he was engaged to a woman, ever, to Darwin. <laughs> Interesting. Wait, wait, so he, when did he, he were, when did, unless he just did this when he got back. He, he was like, engaged to her when oh, he was he gone, was. during the whole okay. voyage. Because right. I could imagine mm. this being like, Okay, no. Maybe I'm he, like, know. totally flipped out and wanted, like, one more booty call in Brazil. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it was. Our, booty our, in right. Bahia. I'm yes. checking my charts. <laughs> Got to check my charts. <laughs> um, and he actually, I cannot uh, validate this uh, statistic I'm about to say because I, <laughs> I got wanted to spit up. Um, <laughs> I do remember reading, and I think it's in my uh, the book about the beagle, and I left that at home. But I, re- I kind of recall this part where 
so they're over by Africa. He's going to shoot across to, uh, to South America to check his charts. And the place that he picks to hit, he gets there within like 30 miles yeah. wow. based on his charts. They were that accurate. So he was really, really, really good charts. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've talked a little bit about this way back in the beginning of this podcast that Fitzroy also, because he kept such meticulous records, was very good at uh, doing a weather forecasting and, 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 and knowing the weather very well. And in fact, he is the one who coined the phrase forecasting weather. Mm-hmm. So, and he had the very first weather uh, section in a newspaper in London Times <laughs> So when he got back. But anyway, so to answer your question, Sarah, uh, I think he was, he was obviously a very guarded Private man. man. <laughs> Private man, but he also, I m- imagine, figured it's better to deal with grumbling just for those two weeks to South America yeah. than the whole time. Yeah. It is, but they do. They shoot across and end up back in Brazil where Darwin has not a good time. Does he? Do you? Yeah. I must here commemorate what happened for the first time during our nearly five years wandering, namely having met with a want of politeness. <laughs> I was refused in a sullen manner at two different houses and obtained with difficulty from a third permission to pass through their gardens to an uncultivated hill for the purpose of viewing the country. I feel glad that this happened in the land of the Brazilians, for I bear them no good will. <laughs> right. A land also of slavery and therefore of moral debasement. So yeah, he's, this is where he uh, seems a little bit frustrated with his uh, excursions on land there. And, well, I th- and then he goes, Go ahead. Really, uh, he really loses it later on talking about the slavery and hearing the screams, right? Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think that's further down in yes. his description. Near Rio de Janeiro, I lived opposite an old lady who kept screws to crush the fingers of her female slaves. Right, and I thank God I shall never again visit a slave country. And this, the screams yeah. of the slaves, that he mm-hmm. says, echo in his head, or he can still hear it somewhat. So. Yeah, I mean, he goes into pretty shocking and extended detail of these really terrible things that that people do to their slaves. That he witnessed. Right, exactly. And then says, I won't even tell you about the stuff that I've heard about but didn't witness. Mm -hmm. Um, And also critiques, you know, so obviously these are just horrendous things, but then also critiques the people that sit by who maybe don't have slaves or don't treat them that way, but still critiques them where he says, um, I met with several people so blinded by constitutional gaiety of the Negro as to speak of slavery as a tolerable evil. Such people have generally visited at the house of the upper classes where the domestic slaves are usually well treated and they have not, like myself, lived among the lower classes. And that's an interesting nuance, right? In that he just says, well, they don't know how bad it can be but not acknowledging that, hey, still being a domestic slave is not yeah. a great right. thing either. And he also says, uh, where I think it's an interesting criticism, he says, and these deeds are done and palliated by men who profess mm-hmm. to love their neighbors and as themselves, who believe in God and pray that his will be done on earth. It makes one's blood boil, yet heart tremble, to think that we Englishmen and our American descendants, with their boastful cry of liberty, have been and are so guilty. 
But it is a consolation to reflect that we at least have made a greater sacrifice than ever made by any nation to eliminate our, to expiate. Expiate? Yeah, I think so. Expiate our sin. What does that mean? I, yeah, I, underla- I underlined that too. And I'm just like, what? okay, so you're admitting that we have been guilty, but then, oh, but at least we've made a greater sacrifice. What is he talking about? Do you mean the sacrifice part or? Yeah, like this, because I feel like he's, oh, we, we can console ourselves because we've made a greater sacrifice than any other nation to make up for this sacrificing the labor have you yeah is that it yeah i think i think that's kind of how i read it that he thinks that well we gave up slavery we've made that sacrifice but america hasn't Mm -hmm. you know at this point the the english prohibit slavery in i think 1831 which is of course before this part of his journey but he would have started Mm -hmm. the journey while slavery was still legal in the in the british colonies and of course america right yes still <laughs> deep in slavery right at this point so i just i don't understand is that just a um apologetic to yeah. just make himself feel better about it it's a weird i, I don't know there there's so many things in this and okay we're reliving i know this our ter- <laughs> tierra del fuego conversation possibly that you know james and i did not agree about darwin's wokeness um <laughs> But, uh, yeah, I don't know. Well, he does talk. I mean, he shows a lot of empathy here. He even talks. I'm trying to find that one quote, which is really funny, because he, he talks about a man who was going to sell. Yes, this right. is it. I was present when a kind-hearted man. Mm-hmm. This seems counterintuitive. Mm-hmm. I was present when a kind-hearted man was on the point of separating forever the men, women, and little children of a large member of families who had long lived together. A kind-hearted man. Right. Mm-hmm. But even, yeah, even the kind ones. Yeah, and, and that language is in his diary. So it wasn't tweaked for the, mm, for the voyage. So that was his observation. Where I think you're right. He's, I like these Englishmen because they're like me, mm-hmm. or these people, or these Spaniards, because they're upper class and they're wealthy. But you know, they have this weakness for slavery, which he doesn't, I don't understand, right? It's sort of like that. Like, he's talking about it as if it's some sort of bad habit you have. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, yeah. So, did you want to say something, Linda? Well, uh, this is moving forward, and I'm not sure if that's where you wanted to go yet, but... <laughs> like I know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but going from slavery, then he goes back, and I, sorry, I don't have the... Um, uh, maybe it's above 505, uh, where he goes back to talking about you know what it's like to see a savage or a barbarian mm-hmm. at first sight yeah. and and he does say one's mind hurries back over past centuries and then asks could our progenitors have been men like these that's not I mean that is interesting that he's thinking about the common origins but uh, I was struck by some of his comments here uh, especially comparison to wild animals, domesticated animals, and not really being able, he said he can't describe or paint the difference between savage and civilized men, just as you could not between a wild and tamed animal. And I, I just couldn't quite, you know, get my mind around what he was trying to say here, or if, 
you know, could he describe it, but just didn't want to or was afraid to, you know, mm-hmm. it was just, I don't know if you want to take a look at that. Yeah, uh, I, know, I know what you're talking about. Okay. Yeah, that um, where he, it goes back to, I think, you, Sarah, your earlier, like, episodes earlier conversation mm-hmm, about mm-hmm. how he, you know, I say, oh, for a guy of his time, he describes these people pretty generously, but mm-hmm. yet you are absolutely right. He still refers to them as sort of animalistic mm-hmm. or primitive humans. Um, right. Like, like as if they were, um, yeah, intellectually less adept than him. Well, and I think, you know, also we can think about some interesting historical contexts because this is kind of, mm, are we coming out of romanticism era at this point, I think, still, which romanticized the savage, right, mm-hmm. and the being one with nature. But then, yeah, that tension between that and 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 yeah criticism and critique of not being in a quote evolved and i mean that in a cultural sense Mm -hmm. state yeah because he he does like you said he refers to them using the domestic and wild animals as a parallel is an odd i mean interesting choice it is I don't, maybe I, I mean. And I wish I would have unpacked that more. <laughs> <laughs> well, go ahead. Feel free to start unpacking. <laughs> uh. What it is, uh, yeah, I, again, I think about him being a 20, what was I like when I was 26? Gosh, I'd hate to think about how I thought about people. <laughs> but oh. what? No, I just, <laughs> I have pictures in my mind. Of 26-year-old James Wagner. Yeah, oh. standing in Disney World. Short, yeah. short Bush Gardens. Bush Gardens. Bush Gardens. High socks. Yes. Well. Leering. <laughs> Multiple earrings, yeah. Arr. No, leering. Oh, leering. leering. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I wasn't as woke as Darwin was, that's for sure. <laughs> All right, so... Uh, you want to take a break and when we come back we can talk about Darwin's advice to the traveler? Sure. Sorry. Well, I'll let it flow. Okay. I have to pee. Have, oh, you have to pee? <laughs> yeah. Okay. After <laughs> this short break, which will be nothing to you, we'll, we'll be back. <laughs> I forgot what I'm doing here. Discovering Darwin. We're trying to get Darwin home, and we've been talking about uh, the. This is the very last episode of the second season of Discovering Darwin, so we really haven't made that announcement. So, so this is it yeah. until <laughs> season three that the we're thinking about. Season, and yet we've been doing this for like four years, I think. Yeah, more, <laughs> more. Is it more? Really? I yes. Because I can remember one of the trips I took where Joey and I listened to a little oh bit of it. Gosh. Oh, my gosh. How painful so. was that? <laughs> That's okay. No, no. It was really funny. Yes. <laughs> we have gotten better. But um, anyway, this is the uh, – and this – and Belinda were talking to me and uh, about the, the language that Darwin uses in describing um, his – sort of. it's interesting. At this chapter – he starts writing a, sort of a reflection, right? You can sort of see him thinking about, wow, what have I accomplished? What I've seen? What have I done? And then a kind of advice for those who want to travel. 
And I thought to myself, that sounds totally like something you would write back at home, at your desk. But I went back in the diary. It's in the diary. So he's sitting in the boat. I was going to ask you that. Yeah, he's in the boat, and he was making these, these exact same sort of reflections generally. There's a little bit more, obviously, in the diary. But, yeah, the whole general tone is there, and the general ideas are, were mm-hmm. there written while he was on the ship. So what were you thinking about, Sarah? What did, what did you want to well, bring up? Well, I don't know. So there's just a few things in terms of how he talks about the landscape, I guess. And so some contrasts he brings up, um, which is, um, you know, as a European, you can never understand what the rainforest is like if you just go to a greenhouse. <laughs> there's that. Mm-hmm. Um, he made often these comparisons of nature and death which was interesting, mm-hmm. so I might want to read a couple quotes yeah, would you? if you guys are interested. And then also, um, for, I guess I'd broadly say forest versus non-forest and their appeal and their contrast to European landscapes. But, the yeah, about death, <laughs> if you will. <laughs> um, so two quotes that I'm just curious to hear what you guys think about this. So one was um, when he uh, they had landed on um, that, sandbar that he refers to right Mm -hmm. in Brazil and he took a boat up a channel he says the channel by which we went and returned from Olinda was bordered on each side by mangroves which sprang like a miniature forest out of the greasy mud banks the bright green color of these bushes always reminded me of the rank grass in the churchyard both are nourished by putrid exhalations the one speaks of death past and the other too often of death to come yeah. What is going on, Chucky? Yeah. <laughs> um, it's just, yeah, tell, tell me what you guys think of that. I don't I, know. It just really struck me, and I wanted to talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> I, it, I actually remember the better, the other one better. Yeah. The better the, one. The, the putrid one. one. <laughs> yes, because putrid, you yeah. know. Well, that one has putrid in it. Oh. The putrid exhalation. Oh, so putrid twice. Yeah. With that. yeah. Okay. Love- Go ahead. You know what we're adjective? I love the greasy. Greasy mud banks. Oh. Yeah. What a yeah. Great, what I a almost said greasy. Yes. Do, you, do you say greasy or greasy? I say greasy. I do too, but some people say greasy. And it yeah. almost felt better there. Greasy. Yeah, greasy. I feel like so that's gross, used to describe gross. somebody's hair. Yeah, exactly. You haven't washed your skin, it. Your green yes. Skin. Anyway, sorry. Um, no, like, what is that about? Uh, the putrid ex- exhalations of the dead in the churchyard <laughs> speaks of the death past and putrid exhalations in the... And, okay, so we've all been to mangroves. Mm-hmm. Um, it is because of the low oxygen levels. Mm-hmm. You will have, like, weird smells of, like, of, of non-oxygenated decomposition, yeah. right? And mm-hmm. so it, they can be pretty damn stinky. And I guess that's kind of what it's about. But... Of death to come. <laughs> yes. What is that? And rank grass in the churchyard. Yeah. Yes, I, I, I agree. I mean, is is there any evidence that he um, did drugs, opiates? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. He, he. Well, he talks about chewing the uh, kava leaves, the leaves. Oh yeah. When he was uh, in. Yeah. No, I mean, it is just some of these sentences do make me think of somebody who yeah. either is just practicing, you know. Language. their poetry or uh, you know thinking about becoming a poet or somebody who's like a little high <laughs> so <laughs> the other one that had death in it um he says among the scenes which are deeply impressed on my mind none exceed those in sublimity the 
primal forests unfaced by the hand of man, whether those of Brazil or whether the powers of life are predominant, or those of Tierra del Fuego, where death and decay prevail. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of decay in it. I don't right. know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's might be kind of depressed. That's what I'm thinking. He's been on here a long time, yeah. and he really <laughs> wants to get home. Yeah, and now this like, damn, damn it, Fitzroy started. Right. Damn measurements. But mm-hmm. yeah, so you have that 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 kind of like weird somberness to what he's mm-hmm. he's talking about. Um, but then in other places, his his language is really exuberant. Like the land is one great, wild, untidy, luxuriant hothouse made by nature for herself, but taken possession of by man who has studded it with gay houses and formal gardens. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> right? I, I mean, I love the made by nature for herself, yeah. but taken possession of by that- man. Um, I, I think that's a pretty evocative turn of phrase for, you know, what we often talk about, the rape of the land or right. whatever in a very Victorian way. <laughs> and actually that, that Terra de Fuego quote, I, I, the next sentence actually also I had written about because he says uh, both, and he's talking about Brazil and Terra de Fuego, mm-hmm. both are temples filled with the varied productions of the God of nature. No one can stand in these solitudes unmoved and not feel that there is more in man than the mere breath in his, of his body. <laughs> so it's like, I love that temple of God of nature, the temples of God of nature. Yeah. And I think, I don't know, it's interesting. And I feel like Belinda and I, you have had these conversations various times, and I'm, I know you read a book about this, but kind of this idea of um, what we as humans find as pleasing landscapes mm-hmm. and that when you look at art oftentimes right. there's like this proportion of there's this proportion of trees to open space to water mm-hmm. to a um i'm trying to think of there was a study like done in americans of what would be the perfect uh art or, or uh, scenery for them and i want to say it was a lake with a baby deer lots of greenery a certain amount of open space but then also a um a soldier (laughs) (laughs) yeah you had to have like some guy with like you know a civil war gun or something Uh yeah (laughs) because yeah there's these times when he talks about the forest but the forest there's this weird myth not weird but this mythos of fear and darkness Right. Right. But beauty. And then he talks about how he's kind of surprised how much he likes the landscapes that seem like they shouldn't be appealing. Mm -hmm. So he talks about um, Patagonia and the plains. Yeah. Like um, I find the plains of Patagonia frequently cross before my eyes. Yet these plains are pronounced by all wretched and useless why then, and in the case, and the case is not peculiar to myself, have these arid wastes taken so firmly a hold on my memory? I can scarcely mm. analyze these feelings, but it must be partly owing to the free scope given to the imagination. The plains of Patagonia are boundless, for they are scarcely passable and hence unknown. They bear the stamp, stamp of having lasted as they are now for ages, and there appears no limit to their duration through future time. Uh, that may have been my favorite part of this chapter. And I don't know if we've talked about this before on this podcast, but 
I grew up in Nebraska in the plains mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, so there's like a warm spot in my heart for openness and planes and and I did my graduate work at the University of Florida and when I moved there um, the pine forest I found them really claustrophobic um, and of course I've come to appreciate many kinds of landscapes but that first initial feeling of like yeah cla- claustrophobia mm-hmm. and this feeling of openness and I suppose home right mm-hmm. in these kind of grasslands um I was like, I get you, Chuck. I feel <laughs> yes. you. And, and I have heard of uh, vice versa of people that have, you know, kind of mental breakdowns when they go to Kansas and they cannot see anything, yeah. you know, that higher looks, yeah. than the land. Yeah. And yeah. that, it, I mean, I can understand how if it, you're not from that landscape, it seems too there's much no sky. distinction. There's too yeah. much sky. And, yeah. yeah. And no distinction. Right. right. It seems. And yeah. And it's strange that. Uh, that Darwin, that's what resonated. If you think right. about all the things he saw, I know. The, the Andes, the yes. Terra de Fuego, the And, I, the and he does, I mean, you know, he talks and, about like, oh, different beautiful things, but mm-hmm. that's the thing that his mind keeps going back to. And But there is evidence that he was depressed, right? I mean, that just, that sounds like he a definitely, person yes. who... Yeah, there's some dark stuff going on. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it really does, in a very beautiful way, sound like something somebody who was depressed would focus on. Hmm. Yeah, he definitely sees a darkness in, mm-hmm. in, in yeah. places, yeah. for sure. So anyway, I would encourage, if you read nothing else in the voyage <laughs> as a listener, I really enjoyed this last chapter because I think, because he is think, he's reflective and he's thinking about his entire journey, but there's some really beautiful turn of phrase, but it really mm-hmm. he hits a lot of the points that he hits throughout the journey in this chapter. Yeah. I like how he talks about the importance of comparisons for enjoying a journey. Yeah. Right. And there is this quote. Um, uh, he says, depends chiefly on the acquaintance with the individual parts of each view, meaning his journey. You know, I am strongly induced to believe that, as in music, the person who understands every note will, if he also possesses proper taste, of course, <laughs> more thoroughly British enjoy taste. the whole. <laughs> so he who examines each part of a fine view may also thoroughly comprehend the full and combined effect. Um, I, I thought that was very nice. But I, I, there also was a line, too, where he says, basically, the benefits of travel don't really happen till you're home. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And you have time to, the pleasure gained at time do not counterbalance the evil. Yes. <laughs> so he does spend a little bit of time uh, giving advice to travelers, right? right? I think one of the things he said, be a botanist. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Duh. <'Cause... Yeah. laughs> I would say be an entomologist. <laughs> well, he was both. Like, he was everything. Yeah, that's true. He was. He was really, one of the things he was sad about on those islands, was there, there was only one beetle. Yes. <laughs> Lots uh, of ants. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So he, he, he does give some uh, advice to the traveler. Uh, my recollection of that advice was, um, you're going to be seasick. Yes, that's right. <laughs> right? And um, you're going to be on the boat a lot. Mm-hmm. And, and I went back to, to sort of, look at the statistics for for Darwin on his journey. We had mentioned this in the beginning of the season so long ago, but uh, in those four years and nine months, it's kind of interesting that 33% of the time he was at sea, about 33% of the time he was at anchor, and 34% of the time he was on land. 
And so what's really interesting is that 66% of his time he slept in the Beagle. So that's where he was at night. Yeah. Even though he'd be on land during the day, he'd come back and When he wasn't going on his like insanely epic journeys. Right. right? So that that accounts for 34% of his time was on those big epic journeys off the ship. But I think his point is if you're, Back in his day, if you're going to travel, you better right. like being on a ship because you're going to be on a ship. Right. Yeah. Or I think the advice would be it's going to suck. So yeah. suck it up. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. So James, Belinda, and I have all traveled with students to various countries, as we've alluded to in mm-hmm. this conversation. And Including Hawaii. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but and not the Keys. Me. And I went to the Florida Keys with yeah. students way back when in the old days. It's a different country, too. Yeah, that is. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. That's yeah. to Margarita country. <laughs> um, but, you know, we, you know, we take all these students, and you have to live with each other for a couple weeks, and we grade them on something we call travelness, which is like being a good citizen, not being an asshole, and taking care of each other, because it's hard, and you're in difficult conditions, and you're with people, and I can only, like, we complain about it, we're two weeks with people in which, at most, there's four people to a room, Mm -hmm. you know, we have a freaking forest to run around in, right? With that said, Jamez still manages (laughs) to walk upon a student while she's peeing. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes, and uh, uh, yes, for sure. In the middle of the jungle. All these functions are definitely at play. Could you imagine on a ship? Exactly. Yes. I know. I just, ugh, and people would smell. Like, okay, my husband always talks about how people prior to, I don't know, today (laughs) would smell all the time. But, like, Mm -hmm. on that boat, you got to think that boat be funky. Yeah. Yes. It, yeah. Maybe uh, the person that designed the ark, so all the poop would come through, <laughs> oh. right? Like maybe they. Oh, uh, it was designed that way. Right. <laughs> yes. Do you remember that? No. Oh yeah, there was this whole idea of because somebody used to say on the ark, what happened to all the animals' yeah. waste, and like Ken Ham or somebody oh. figured the, it all out. Yes. yes. I figured so. we'd have to chuck it over the side. Well, okay. you know, um, when I went and looked at Fitzroy's. Uh, journal to see sort of how he talked about the return and, and his overall view of the voyage mm-hmm. and his take on this whole trip was did he get over darwin's ill-shaped head yes okay <laughs> <laughs> he did and, and he enjoyed his company ultimately but he said it is perhaps remarkable that while the beagle was in commission between february 1829 and november of 1836 because they get back in october and then the ship goes darwin quickly gets off. Yeah. I'll, I'll read you a <laughs> quote out. there. Um, and then another month later before it gets um, um, decommissioned. He says, but during this time, this five, nearly almost five years, no serious illness brought on or contracted while in service happened on board. Neither did any accident of consequence occur in the ship, nor did any man ever fall overboard during all that time. And he says, the freedom from illness must be attributed under providence to active employment, good clothing and wholesome food in healthy though sometimes disagreeable climates and our immunity from accident during exposure to a variety of risks especially in boats i attribute referring to visible causes to the care attention and vigilance of the excellent officers whose able assistance was not valued by me more than their sincere friendship whoa wow but you know if you think about it for a captain that's you Going back to what you're asking, kind of, you know, why didn't he tell the crew? 
he was definitely hot coffee, right? He was definitely okay. running the ship very tight. <laughs> but he was very happy with the, that nobody, he didn't lose right. anybody. Although it, it, there was a line from Darwin that said something to the effect of, yeah, bad things could happen, but it's very rare and most likely won't. And I was like, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, there's got to be some luck there. <laughs> well, and I mean, Darwin was ill vaguely yes. through his whole life after this and like there's a lot of debate about what it was like one hypothesis is he co- he contracted Chagas from mm-hmm. um, an assassin bug right kissing bug kissing bug right same some bug same thing yeah, yeah. it is assassin, assassin bug you're right yeah. it's within that group um, he obviously had probably some psychosomatic things going on as well but anyway I w- was curious and I don't know so I'm putting you on the spot there's probably mm-hmm. not evidence one way or another but like other people that had been on the ship i'm sure the only thing that you'd have like we would have possible information from would be people who were officers but did anybody else have like well fitzroy killed himself but did anyone else (laughs) have like serious health issues later in life oh i don't that's so interesting but you know what who would have cared back then? Right, yeah. right. Yeah. They yeah. wouldn't well, be following like maybe them. the officers. Right. Yeah. I mean, this right. is where I, th- I think, you know, Fitzroy's bragging the fact that, you right. know, at least Nobody, under his... Right, nobody, like, I didn't lose right. anybody. Right, And And they, you know, um, you might remember there's a moment where uh, uh, Darwin says that, I think he's on Cape Verde, where he says it's the unhealthy time. Mm-hmm. And so he kept his walks oh. short yeah. and he stayed away. So Fitzroy was clearly very vigilant about you know when they go to port or when you know they got quarantined that one time very early mm-hmm. on in the trip oh interesting yeah so uh, you know i i do yeah there was probably illness going around but you know, i don't know post post if, if yeah if anything yeah, happens so i i wanted to read you in his diary so this to me it's very weird the way this book ends right he spends some time giving uh reflections on if you're going to travel be a botanist what else uh, you'll see a lot of great things oh if he, you're a if you're a young naturalist nothing can be more improving than a journey to distant countries so mm-hmm. and that people will be very friendly to you mm-hmm. and that you can generally rely except on. in brazil yeah those people although he doesn't bring that up in a summary I you know, know. Exactly. easy to forget yeah. um and um you know that that general state but you know it's to me it's really interesting because he just says uh in the book where does it go uh you're like, okay, I'm, I'm getting home. I'm, I'm where, when, when does mm-hmm. he say I'm home? And it's like he doesn't go home in the he, book. He doesn't go home, but he doesn't even like say uh, we're home, right? Like October the second, we make it to England in the in the voyage. But here's what he says in his diary: October the second, after a tolerably short passage, but with some very heavy weather, we came to an anchor at Falmouth. To my surprise and shame, I confess, the first sight of the shores of England inspired me with no warmer feelings than if I had been a, than if it had been a miserable Portuguese settlement. Wow. Yeah. That's surprising. Yeah, I was totally because surprised by that. After this, I was reading James gave me a copy of um, Desmond Moore's book about the Beagle, and um, he freaking hightailed it back home, and but like got home at like. I don't know, late at night or early in the morning yes. and waited. Like, it was kind of impressive. Like, he went to an inn to stay the night so he wouldn't disturb his family. But basically, they're all having breakfast and he walks in the door and they weren't expecting him. He's just like, wow. hey. Oh, sorry. One other thing. I just have to, I don't know if you know the answer to this, James. 
I think it was when they were on Ascension, they got mail from home. Mm-hmm. How the hell did they know where to send mail to wow. them? Oh. Um, you know, like, I know there were various times that he sent mail and he picked up mail, but, like, I mean, I, th- how, I, th- uh, I think what happens is that um, they, like, you've been to the Galapagos, right? There's a yeah. the mailbox there. So yeah. I, th- I think there were certain islands. That's probably why they went to Ascension, right? There was okay. probably certain islands that, that that's expecting. where you go to get your mail. Yeah, okay. Now, the question is why, how did his family know, okay, in the next six months, if yeah, we want him to get a letter, here. send it to this island because yeah. he's not going to be... He's going to be in that part yeah. of the trip. That I don't know. Yeah. You know how well they corresponded to, to know exactly at what like point what they're the, going to. Yeah, because obviously no. Well, I don't know. Did anyone know that they were, besides Fitzroy, know that they were going back to Bahia? Maybe the Admiralty did. Maybe like maybe Fitzroy's having, dropping off letters with the yeah. Admiralty, and they know what's happening. But well, Fitzroy got in a lot of trouble, right, for not following. Oh. Orders. Remember, he bought that ship, the schooner, well, yeah, right. and they got mad at him and chastised him, and then he sold it and was going to quit. So I think he was really a free agent. He okay. was he went rogue a lot. Okay. <laughs> so in the, in that general sense, I yeah. don't know if anybody knew they were going to go to back to Brazil until he said, we're going back. Okay. But uh, to your other question, I don't know either, except that it seems maybe that's why they went to Ascension. Like these are the places yeah, you stop to get, get mail. Yeah. And, and they because, also carry yeah. mail, remember? Sometimes they would take mail from right. and pick it up. So part of their job is to drop stuff off. Yeah. So maybe that's all part of the system. Yeah. It's, it is an odd... Uh, right, because, yeah. I don't know. Just how do you know yeah. where to direct it when? And yeah, well, you know, I talked to... We had a... Jeffrey and I had that little <laughs> short podcast about that, yeah. money and how he got money. The same oh, okay. sort of question uh, on that. All right, so then, yeah, he gets home. He doesn't really talk about it in The Voyage. Yeah. Um, but you're right, he gets home, jumps off ship immediately, gets the carriage, heads back home. Um, and, and then Fitzroy, of course, decommissions the ship and then later becomes uh, the governor of New Zealand mm-hmm. and has a tragic ending there, which mm. we've talked about in episode mm. one of the season that we started two years ago. <laughs> At least. So <laughs> is it only two? I don't know. Yeah, this, this voyage is almost parallel to Darwin's yeah, own experience. Exactly. This is like 24 for the Beagle. Right? Yeah. In real time. Yeah. <laughs> 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 right. Yeah. So, is any, uh, Belinda, is there anything else you want to talk about or end up saying about the poor Charles? And No, I, I thought it was like at the very end, second to last paragraph, he says, um, just basically, you know, because of having a short time in each place, um, I have found it to my cost a constant tendency to fill up the wide gaps of knowledge by inaccurate and superficial hypotheses. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but I kind of liked that because I guess the, thing, the idea that he's always thinking of things mm-hmm. as a question yeah. hypotheses, I mean, how often do we want our students to do that? And of course, we would get irritated. Not inaccurate, because we know that's not a great way to describe a hypothesis, but uh, the superficial part. But I do wonder if that contributed to his creativity and originality yeah. and success, yeah. right? That he just was always thinking thing, uh, things as a hypothesis. Hmm. Yeah, I didn't catch that, but yeah, that's very good. Because yeah, it, he is constantly trying to figure things out. Right. Like, why did he decide to figure out how coral atoll islands were formed, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, and just, you know, his description of the rats diverging from mm-hmm. each other or I had a few other comments where I was like gosh it's just so impressive that here's just this little side note but yeah he's still trying to figure out 
how that happened. Yeah, and like I, the other thing to me then is like, what 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 is this as a text? The book itself, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Because there is a lot of that, right? Of him, of us kind of seeing how his mind works. It's kind of a travelogue. It's kind of a scientific treatise. It's kind of an adventure yarn. Um, what, what, like, yeah, what was his goal? Obviously, to sell books. No, I, well, first, right, this was a report that's part of his right. job. Yeah. And then the author. They're like, Murray, hey, we'll yeah. give you money. And it was, he got a f- pretty big, adv- he got like a thousand, thousand pound grant, which I don't know what that would be in today's dollar, but a freaking lot, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, to, yeah, to once he did this to create a series or whatever. Sorry. No, no, and well, it makes me think of what Melinda, you guys were making fun of him because, yeah, he comes back home and he never ever has <laughs> to work again. again. Right. Right. He he enjoys the luxuries of inheritance. Yeah. And um, but he's not idle, obviously. No, absolutely. But but he. But doesn't. even then, like I feel like, I mean, I don't like to turn people into like, oh, it's a great mind, and right. But there, is, I, there is something about that because he never like. You read about, like, once he's back to Downhouse and what he does, it's like, oh, he takes a walk, and then he works for a little while, and then he plays with his kids. And, like, he's maybe working six hours a day on maybe, his right. science, right? And correspondences in the morning. Yeah. Every morning was writing right. letters to other people and reading but, letters. But, I mean, he still had a very leisurely life, even for his, un- his whatever, I get to do science because it's fun part. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, I still feel like it's insane production, given the actual like straight up time that was like science work if that makes sense well you as you're talking it made me think of one of the arguments you often hear about creative people is like Mm -hmm. they peak at 30 right right they they that's pretty much that it and then after that they're kind of coasting off Mm -hmm. of stuff and that's not darwin he did not peak he kept producing lots of novel ideas 20 years later, yeah. 30 years later. Into his, mm-hmm. Yeah. So he, he doesn't show that traditional kind of, I guess, uh, arc of young, hot active, shit. hot shit mm-hmm. ideas. And then, and then yeah. Which is, Maybe this voyage gave him a lifetime of things to think about. Yeah. yeah. We should Ooh. all take. Was that, a, was that the last word? Yes, I was trying to get you all the <laughs> up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, how do we get out of this awkward inter- interaction, right? Well... Uh, thank you all for really hanging in there with us. And thank you, Belinda, for joining us. Yeah. Thank you very much, we'll loves. Have, we'll have to have you come back. Yeah. Um, we are considering season three mm-hmm. of uh, Discovering Darwin and doing uh, On the Emotions of Man and Animals. Um, so uh, stay we'll tuned. Stay tuned. <laughs> Hopefully it will be more regular. Yeah. And yeah. sooner than our. On a, yeah. Yeah, we're hoping to get. We, what we want to do is get on a regular schedule, yes. right? We want to be regular. Yes, lots I of fiber. You, me too. Yeah, a little granola yes. should help us. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> but anyway, thanks again for listening to our podcast, and we uh, want to say bye-bye. Bye-bye. bye bye. Bye.